I think I was 14 when I wrote one chapter and sent it to Tor and hoped that they thought that was good enough that they were just going to go ahead and just sign me up for it. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Andrew D. Meredith. He aims to take readers on a journey of the mind to fantastical places with the games and novels he has crafted. He resides near Spokane, Washington, with his wife and fellow author, Patricia Meredith, as well as their two children. Currently available is Thrice, A Needle in Leaf Story. In July, he launches his new epic fantasy series, The Collation Cycle. You can follow his work at andrewdmeredith.com. My guest today is Andrew D. Meredith. And Andrew, how about some literature to start off? Okay. You want me to start with the reading? That would be fantastic. You got it. All right. I am going to be reading from P.G. Woodhouse today. And this is from the story. Uh, It's actually from a great collection called Plums. Folio Group put this out as a bunch of little short stories they found out of P.G. Woodhouse. And this is from All's Well with Bingo. The thing started one morning when Bingo returned to the love nest for a bite of lunch after taking the Pekingese a saunter. He was in the hall trying to balance an umbrella on the tip of his nose, his habit of leisure, and Mrs. Bingo came out of her study with a wrinkled brow and a couple of spots of ink on her chin. Oh, there you are, she said. Bingo, have you ever been to Monte Carlo? Bingo could not help wincing a little at this. Unwittingly, the woman had touched an exposed nerve. The thing he had always wanted to do most in the world was to go to Monte Carlo, for he had a system which couldn't fail to clean out the casino. But a few places, as you were probably aware, are more difficult for a married man to sneak off to. No, he said with a touch of moodiness. Then, recovering his usual sunny aplomb, look, he said, watch, old partner in sickness and in health. I place the umbrella so, then maintain a perfect equilibrium. I want you to go there at once, said Mrs. Bingo. Bingo dropped the umbrella. You could have knocked him down with a toothpick. For a moment, he tells me, he thought that he must be dreaming some beautiful dream. It's for my book. I can't get on without some local color. Bingo grasped the gist. Mrs. Bingo was often discussed this business of local color with him. Nowadays, he knew if you are providing wholesome fiction for the masses, you have simply got to get your atmosphere right. The customers have become cagey. They know too much. Chance your arm are with mise en scene, and before you can say, what ho, you've you've made some bloomer and people are writing you nasty letters. Beginning, dear madame, are you aware? I can't go myself, and there's a pen and ink dinner on the Friday, and on Tuesday the writer's club is moving a luncheon to Miss Carrie Barrow's Bop, the American novelist. And any moment now I shall be coming to the part where Lord Peter Shipman breaks the bank. So do you think you could possibly go, Bingo Darling? Bingo was beginning to understand how the Israelites must have felt when the manna started descending from the wilderness. Of course I'll go, old egg, he said heartily. Anything I can... His voice trailed off. A sudden thought had come, biting into his soul like acid. He had remembered that he hadn't a bean to his name. He had lost every penny he possessed two weeks before on a horse called Bounding Beauty, which was running, if you can call it running, in a 2.30 at Haydock Park. 
The trouble with old Bingo was that he will allow his cooler judgment to be warped by dreams and omens. Nobody had known better than he that by the ruling of the form book, Bounding Beauty hadn't a chance. But on the eve of the race, he had a nightmare in which he saw his uncle Wilberforce dancing the rumba in the nude in the steps of the National Liberal Club and, like a silly ass, accepted this as a bit of stable information. And bang, as I say, had gone every penny he had in the world. That is awesome. I was trying so hard not to crack up on this side of the mic while you were reading that. Yeah, I found that one. It was just too perfect to read. It's hilarious. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Who introduced you to P.G. Woodhouse? My wife, Trisha. My wife, Trisha, introduced me to it. Uh, it was a slow burn getting to him. She had several books from her literature classes in college, and I looked at them and I was like, oh, well, I guess that that's, looks fun, but I never read it. And then on our honeymoon, on our way, on our drive back, we had to drive a U-Haul back for other family members. Uh, we listened to a Jeeves and Wooster story. And of course, that's hilarious. I think it was the, the cow creamer incident. And then um, discovered the TV show. Uh, about three years later when we were living in Seattle and, and I was just hooked after that, especially ever since um, with, with COVID being at home, staying, you know, out gardening, Bluetooth in my ear, PG Woodhouse has been both a comfort for me because it's pretty much the same story told like a hundred different times, just an improvement on the last. Uh, but it also has really helped me when I edit, I try to listen to PG Woodhouse when I'm editing a book. Because then it tends to elevate my English just enough, but it's different from what I'm currently writing. And so that also makes sure that it doesn't kind of poison the well. Um, I mm. tried to listen to uh, um, Terry Pratchett once while I was writing and all my characters started thinking they were really funny and they weren't. <laughs> uh, I, had to stop. I had to stop right, in the, I had to stop right there. Um, so I haven't had, had a chance to listen to, to Pratchett since then because he's just fantastical enough that he tr starts trying to be funny. And I start trying to be funny and it's just not funny. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and I can see why Terry Pratchett would be too close to your own style of writing that um, I've been reading your book thrice, Thank you. which is folklore slash fantasy world. And so I can see the tie with Pratchett's world and the whole Discworld series. And I've actually read quite a bit of Pratchett nice. and, um, yeah. They belong to my husband. Isn't it fun when you get married to someone who loves books? Yes. It can really <laughs> yes, add it a lot to your life. <laughs> it does. The humor in Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. and, and I can see like the tie between Woodhouse and Pratchett that they both use humor. And my confession is that your wife, Patricia, Trisha, has introduced me to P.G. Woodhouse. And I now have one mm -hmm. on my shelf mm -hmm. from the used bookstore that's going to Which get one? read. What I have here is joy in the morning oh yeah is that is that an uncle fred story i think this is a jeeves one okay good good good, good. i mean that's all i really, know there's really not a bad one there's a few that i haven't necessarily finished because they were too similar to other stories um but if it's a jeeves and wooster story you're golden if it's a blanding story which uh, almost all the other greats he wrote most of the other greats he wrote take place at blandings are fantastic but the characters coming and going it's much more of an ensemble story where you don't know who's even going to be the star um mm. trisha and my favorite is leave it to p smith or leave it to smith the ps silent as in shrimp um the uh leave it to p smith is probably i think his best work like you could feel that he had finally hit his his climax and and the things that he wrote in that even though it's a it's a not p smith is not a new character it's la it's the last p smith character but it's so standalone and introduced blandings and p smith's hilarious and 
it, uh, absurdity ensues. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great one. I know I'm reading an, an absurd book right now. I'm reading Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, yeah, okay. And yep. th- there's quite a bit of absurdity in that so yeah. far. And and it's yeah. so funny that his work can be both so deep philosophically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. theologically and sociologically. And yet he can write just crazy fantastical stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed the the piece that you read and it pointing yeah. out there's like hilarity and absurdity there, but also the fact that I found it fascinating that the protagonist's wife is a writer. Yeah. Yes. He has so many writers in his stories and he'll make fun of them. They're serious. They're, they shouldn't be writing at times. And it's, he (laughs) writes himself in so well because he wrote for, well, from 1905 until he died in, I think 79. Um, oh wow! And he wrote, I think, a basically a book for every year uh, is what it breaks and ends up breaking down to. He was a little bit slower during World War II because you know he was under house arrest by Nazis, and that that doesn't help because uh, he didn't want to leave France because he didn't want to abandon his two dogs. <laughs> so he got stuck behind enemy lines and tried to do some writing. So that slowed down his his total count for the for the years. But I think it breaks down to one one for every year out of like sixty years of writing. It's pretty crazy. Wow. Are you yeah. meaning to tell me that he didn't make it to Monte Carlo to check out the the scenery for his book when he was under he house arrest at one by point. Nazis? Uh, he, after he <laughs> after World War II, he moved to America because he got vilified in England. They basically they made him broadcast on, on the BBC from Nazi Germany, and people thought he was expatriate for that, and he never was. He was trying to basically earn other people's ways out of 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 Germany because he was stuck there. And so after mm. that, he went to America and never returned to, to England again, uh, which is sad because even, even once he was basically exonerated, he was just like, nah, I'm good. You didn't, you, you read, you read between lines that weren't there. So I'm, I'm done. And he just wow. never left America. Yeah. It's pretty sad. So what in this piece really influenced you influences you? And, and you said that it elevates to the English, but what else about his work gets you moving as a writer you know he's not he's not laugh out loud all the time you smile the whole time you're reading him but it's funny because it's serious in it in that it's not serious right it's saying things that are that are so true they're so universal it's um he's he's making fun of what we would think are big things or or belittling things or or raising drama where there is none because that's what we do that that's humanity in a in a nutshell is is us making a big deal about where the fork sits by the plate or else or Aunt Mabel better bring green bean casserole or or that's it that's it's over and I'm not I'm not even showing up again it's like really that, that's the hill you want to die on and history is replete with us deciding what hills we want to die on that are just stupid and absurd and if we can't laugh at that even a little bit or at least roll our eyes then then we're taking life way too seriously even when we should be taking life seriously. It's it's important to still roll your eyes a little bit and realize that we're all just kind of silly. So maybe a little bit of perspective and humility. Yes, yes. Which you can sort of see in a non-humorous way in Joven. He kind of expects people, he kind of expects the worst in people, but he doesn't expect them to do the worst thing. And that is probably, uh, no, it's not probably, it is a bit of me coming out through him. Is that, all right, yeah, I kind of figured you might do that. I kind of wish you hadn't, but all right, let's move on. And that's that's uh, that's Joven's attitude in a nutshell. And Joven is your protagonist in Thrice. Correct. Yes, he is. 
I think it's almost impossible for writers to not write themselves into the story. I agree. A little bit in at least one character. <laughs> mm-hmm. Usually multiple characters, different facets of the personality and multiple yeah. characters. One of the things I found very fascinating about your book mm-hmm. is it has um, all of these aspects of Slavic folklore. Mm-hmm. in it. And yeah. obviously the Slavic world has kind of been brought to the forefront of many of our minds with um the current conflict in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What drew you to Slavic folklore? I was drawn to it because I needed something new to write that was one step left of my normal. To put into full context would be like if you take the 1980s and the dark fantasy of that was one step left of Judeo-Christian values in that it was trying to subvert them and move away from them and say, well, you know, there is no God, blah, 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 blah. So they tried to step a step to the left, but they still as writers had the Judeo-Christian values ingrained in them because they grew up in the West and take even just after that. And now today with Brandon Sanderson as a, as a Mormon writer, he is writing from something just step left of what we consider normal Judeo-Christian values. And it's just a little odd. And so it has a familiarity with out being too alien. Well, Slavic tends to be just a little bit to the left of basic European medieval or Norse. And so those are, you know, the big European or, or, or like take um, like British uh, Welsh history too. Those are just a little bit left from what we would consider the normal fantasy of you know, basic medieval France, basically, right? So taking mm-hmm. something, going Slavic, not going so far. I, I, did, I didn't take it too far left. It actually sits kind of somewhere between, you could almost say like it's a Polish, slightly Eastern, uh, Eastern European. But I also didn't put as much darkness as a lot of the new Slavic um, stories or Polish stories are, are ending. Like in Witcher is incredibly dark. And using Slavic law, folklore as the basis for its for its background, um, so it's just different enough that you you can subvert expectations in in what you what you portray. You and I live in the same community of Spokane, mm-hmm. Washington area, yep. and uh, I think it's also very interesting because over ten percent of our population here in Spokane is Ukrainian, and we have a larger Slavic population as well. But it's um, it's a significant minority within our own huge. community, and it's been growing since the 1980s too. So, so it's mm-hmm. not so it's not mm-hmm. even a brand new brand new group of of, of immigrants. They they've been coming here and they're bringing their families here for since long, long as I've been alive. I worked with several people from the former Soviet bloc, yeah. a, a multitude of nations within the former Soviet bloc, and just kind of giving voice to that experience, that folklore, that history. Mm-hmm. to Western eyes and Western ears, I think is really powerful because um, it breaks down some of the barriers. It gives us broader perspective. Mm-hmm. So I find that really neat that that's something that was highlighted in your book. Yeah. And why do you think folklore matters in general? It provides a a context that everybody can relate to and takes you just outside of reality enough that you know you're that you know what you're reading is a story as opposed to trying to make a statement inside. Of course you're being, everybody's making a statement. That's, that's what we do. But, but if you're making a statement um, and you're telling just a straight historical fiction, well, you have the context of, well, does this person know this particular history in order to have a context for it? 
well, I don't want them to have a context. I want them to just enjoy the story so that I can tell a story I need to tell so that lessons can be learned. And, and yeah, so I, I think having a folklore like that also allows you to, um, yeah, to contextualize the the faceless evil that, that someone's facing. Uh, like Beowulf, the um, the Grendel is, it's he's a quintessential evil. Well, what is it? Well, it depends on who's telling the story. In the end, it's still the evil. And so it's faceless. Well, then you have other stories where the evil is not faceless. It's very human. And if you have folklore that then creates either a context for the morality that's going to be used in this particular context or, or, and so then you can subvert that with the immorality that is, that is pertinent to that particular story. So wait a minute, are you telling me stories matter? No, they don't at all. We should stop reading them. (laughs) I I agree wholeheartedly. No. Uh (laughs) Well, and I I like the point that you make about if it's straight hist fic, straight Mm -hmm. historical fiction, which is what I write, Mm -hmm. then you do have this balance that you have this contract with the reader that there's going to be, that it's going to be realism, Mm -hmm. that it's going to be historically accurate. Mm -hmm. But we need to write a question mark, and especially if we're writing outside of our own culture. Mm -hmm. Of what does historical accuracy mean? Yeah. Yeah. That you can read many news stories, you can read many perspectives, but do any of us, especially outside of your culture, really know the truth? And that's the benefit of it being fiction. But at the same token, you do have a contract with your reader. Yeah. That they're going to experience something of a reality. Mm -hmm. And it does. and, And so I can see how something that takes us out of that realism into some sort of speculative fiction can remove a little bit of that burden, but still have the imagination experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, part of what I've had to do for my research is um, part of my novel takes place in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. The character is Catholic and it's like learning the history of the 20th century history of Ireland, even, you know, and then older history as well, going back centuries and centuries. But just looking at 20th century history of Ireland, there are so many perspectives. All of these need to be taken into account. And still, did you just get a bird's eye view or do you know what it meant to live in a human heart in that place? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, when you're, when you enter into folklore, you can enter into that space and not have to worry as much about a rigid accuracy to tell the story. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. To and you're me. also setting up, you're setting up your, your rules for your, for the trust that the reader is going to give you. If you, if you introduce a, a monster that is, is this monster intelligent? Is it not intelligent? What is, what is surrounding it? Someone who walks into a fantasy, if they know this is a fantasy, is like, Oh, it's a monster. Okay, cool. Tell me about it. If you in the middle of Ireland are telling a story and uh, D- Dan Wells had this issue, he, he started off this, this mystery story. And it took him a quarter of the way through before he introduced, oh, by the way, there's a monster that's involved. Mm. And readers quit it because they're like, this wasn't what I signed up for. What happened? Because he didn't make a promise early on in the actual text, Mm -hmm. not on the back of the book, but on the actual text that, by the way, by the way, there's monsters. There's supernatural in this. And mm-hmm. so it threw people off. So you want to be able to establish, and you want to establish your clout too, right? You doing a little bit of an info dump on Ireland is going to allow you sh- allow you readers to show, hey, by the way, I know about this thing. Now, when I say this other thing and I flippantly just move past it, trust that I know what I'm talking about. You probably don't, <laughs> but you don't know that. 
And so they'll talk about like, you know, if you're going to have horses, know your horses or don't have horses at all, or just move past it and assume you know about horses, but don't ever do anything that can get you in trouble. Like the part I read, she wants to know about Monte Carlo. So you need to go live Monte Carlo for me. And she doesn't want to get it wrong because she's going to get those people who write in and say, actually, did you know that horses come in? It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. They're never called white. They're called gray. I got it. I'm sorry. It's just the way I did it. It's like, well, I got, I, I was able to fix a bit of that because in um, the other work that I'm working on, I've removed all normal animals. Every single animal is fantastical as real. So every bird has four wings instead of two, instead of horses, they all ride sli- six legged Sleipners. So, well, how do you take care of these? I decide it's a horse, but it has six legs. Well, why didn't you just call a horse with six legs? Because if I did that, then I also have to introduce dogs. I didn't want dogs. I wanted pangolins that were treated as dogs. And I wanted manticores as house cats and all these little things. So it's fun to just take, you know what? No, no, no. Nothing's normal here except for humans. That's all you got. And and now, and now they just have to trust me that if I talk about an animal and never say what it looks like, it's a thing. And you just figure it out later or ask me at a con. <laughs> Oh, cons. Nerdy, nerdy, nerdy. I think this is this is one thing that I find so fascinating is that like the imagination and high fantasy and low fantasy Mm -hmm. and Christianity don't need to be mutually exclusive. No, they really don't. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that in your experience? Modern fantasy was started by a very strong Catholic Christian in the first place. J.R.R. Tolkien, not started, but he was the seed for what has become the modern fantasy that we now have. He's, he's, he's mm-hmm. the baseline. And, um, and his, there, there's so much of his faith written in, even if at times he denied it, if he was really you know, pinned down today of his modern audience asking him, he would, he would have, he would have had something to say about how he built his pantheon based on 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 the spiritual um spiritual council and and all that jazz he did he did a lot of things that you know it's funny that today christian families would be like oh you can read tolkien it's fine it's like you know that that has just as much gods and magic and things that you're really poo-pooing about other things in his book it's literally right there yeah but gandalf was an angel it's like i get that he was also a wizard and so mm-hmm. there's a lot of contextualized from that. He wrote books and books on why folklore was important uh, because it does establish that moral base. Uh, I was reading an article, oh, I forget who wrote it, but it was recently, what, you know, what's the difference between science fiction and fantasy as, as two very different genres is that, you know, science fiction is what is humanity capable of and fantasy almost always is a struggle of what is morality. And it will set up new rules, but your characters have to then figure out where they sit inside of that. And the rules might be different because it's it's philosophy, right? And philosophy is not theology. It's just a what if. And if you set up a different rule, like you say, well, in, in this world, this thing is not wrong. Okay, we're going to go with that. And then just like a time travel movie, but is it wrong? Maybe that's the struggle that that author is going to show is like, this thing isn't murder's not bad. Okay. We're going to have a whole story of where they're going to figure out that, oh, by the way, we've been wrong all along. Murder is bad as well. No, duh. Well, these characters didn't know that though. That was the context they were built on. Same thing happens in a time travel story. Can we change time? Like, no, you can't change time. And by the end, they'll usually figure out that, oh, nope, we were right. You can't change time. Or by the end, they decide, oh no, you can change time. Oh, that changes everything. Drop end of book having that opportunity to, to actually struggle through 
um, the morality of something um, is fun and, and sometimes a little depressing when you're writing it too, but <laughs> that's the way it is. Okay. Then I have to sneak this in when you talk yeah. about that, the difference between sci-fi and fantasy. Mm-hmm. I know I made Patricia read A Canticle for Leibowitz yep. by Walter Miller too. Jr. And yep. you did too. Mm-hmm. So where would you think that book would lay on this continuum? I put it in science fiction because there's no fantastical elements, even if there's theological. And it's questionable whether there is actually a saint in um, in Leibowitz, if, if mm-hmm. Leibowitz has, has been going through this whole time, if he's there or not, if it is a saint, if it is an angel, or if it's just people are- a dude. A dude. Um, I actually thought two way two thirds of the way through when they were talking about um, humanity was born when the atom dropped, and so that Adam was a different earlier human. Which I I, I know all of that uh, mythology too of all the way back to um, the Gregorian blah 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 and all, and all that jazz. So I kind of wondered if two thirds of the way through that if everybody in the book was a robot. Ooh. Because up until that point, there hadn't been a single female. In the entire book, except for the daughter of Leibowitz, which who's long dead, right? Everybody after that is male, which at a monastery, understandable. Uh, Carthusian wanted that. Then they go to New Rome and then it goes into the third act and there's a female reporter. And I was like, oh, okay, there's male and female. I had wondered if these were all androids that were trying to figure out what life was. And, and he wow. still could have gone there, um, but he didn't. And it was like, okay, but that's the kind of thing that I as a reader and a writer will be like, okay, write this idea down. Because that'd be a good idea to write is what if there's no more humanity. And isn't that the neatest thing is when you're reading a book and something is left ambiguous, but Mm -hmm. that ambiguity is actually fascinating and it makes your brain work even harder. Like I read a gothic novel by Eleanor Bork Nicholson called Brother Wolf. Okay. And one of her characters was always falling asleep at like really... Mm -hmm strange times and i was like does she have narcolepsy and and she's like you know i never thought of that she said that what was causing her not being able to focus in these environments was close relationship with the preternatural unprotected mm-hmm, exposure mm-hmm. to the preternatural but you know those little questions you ask about these people and it just goes to show you how real characters can become yes very the, much you're so. thinking about aspects of their life that don't exist on the page but they exist yeah. in your mind yeah yeah why do you yeah. think that existence in the mind matters it provides context for you as a writer and allows them to outgrow what your expectations are for them and a lot of that is you projecting yourself into their into their character because 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 you are because because that internal monologue is with yourself but it becomes something that you've seg- sectioned off in your head for 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 that character right it's the only way to get them to be three-dimensional and not be what your 16-year-old version would write. I mean, mm. we, we absolutely hate until we get older and then we hate it still because we're still not old enough when we hear, well, you need more life experience. Well, you need more life experience. And you're like, as a 16-year-old, you're like, yeah, I don't need, I'd like to just do it. Yeah, but you're still just a 16-year-old. That doesn't mean anything to a 16-year-old. Just as at our age, somebody who's 80 is saying, well, you don't really know yet. You're not 80. It's like, yeah, but you don't really know yet. You're not 120. Nothing ever changes. It's just it's just a shifting version of you being juvenile compared to anybody else who's older and you being more mature than anybody else who's younger. Same thing with a character that's really well written, has grown out of a two-dimensionality, maybe a projection from another person you know in real life. I have characters who I've specifically said, no, no, this is that person's personality and this person's body. Okay, let's put it together. 
and then they slowly outgrow that character into something that is that is their own, which is good, especially if you don't want to get in a lawsuit. Um, <laughs> yeah, with with Rasputin, um, things shift, and then once they shift, they grow into their own character. Um, uh, in my other story, I have a character who, for a very long time, I was was me, very much a Mary Sue of myself, and I took him down a notch to become a secondary character to the main new main character. And then in this last pass a year ago, I turned that character into the sister instead of the brother of the main character. And so the shift mm. in gender, even though nothing really changed at all, it did it changes how I read it. It changes how the scenes work. And then now that I'm writing even newer stuff now, it's starting to come out. And so it's so Rawl now Ralia has slowly evolved into a new character who's their own, who isn't just me being 100% projected on for, for 15 years. Now she can grow, which is my intention because later on when she ever has her own story and book, she's now her own character and is outside of what she used to be because she grew in that. Even if she was once just me in the book. Yeah. The infinite future potential. And what's, what's the name of the work that you're currently working on? I'm working on right now is the collation cycle. It's actually the first book I worked on and the one I was taking a break from when I wrote thrice and the collation cycle is a very, it's going to be a very long form uh, epic fantasy uh, just announced it. Um, well, I'm sure it'll, I will have announced it a while ago uh, when you see it, when you hear this. Uh, so it's announced and I have six books coming out this year uh, in 2022. And then I'll have six books coming out next year. Wow. And then I'll take one year off to finish uh, thrice trilogy. And then I'll get back and I'll do it again. Another six books and another six books. And and in the end, there's probably going to be about well 20 in the first half of the series, basically. So it'll be a, it'll be a big old wheel of time. So you're working on being as prolific as Woodhouse. <laughs> I'm shooting for it. That's the plan. Yep. Wow. Yep. I'm, up, I'm up every morning from five to seven writing. And then I try to do some editing or audio recording in the evenings. And that gets my, gets my word count going. Well, and I found it neat that you were doing your own audiobooks as well, because I do find it yeah. interesting to hear to hear how the author viewed the voice of the character. I mean, it's that catch-22 that you develop your own voice in your head, mm -hmm. but it's also mm -hmm. neat to hear the author's voice. Yeah. And so as I'm doing Thrice, I've been flip-flopping back and forth yeah. between the audiobook and the print book, yeah. which is something I had heard on the Read Aloud Revival podcast, okay. is she was talking about you know how to read more books, because mm -hmm. I think that can benefit all of us. Mm -hmm. And that that's something that she'll do is she'll listen to the audiobook while she's doing chores and things like that. And then before bed, she'll read the paper book, whatever chapter mm -hmm. she happened mm -hmm. to end on. I'm like, well, that's because I used to do just one format or the other, but I find yeah. that flip flopping actually can make your mind take in the story in a mm -hmm. broader context, I found. Mm -hmm. And it also trains you as a reader to not be too thrown off if there's a bad reader. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It, that it, it takes time to get there. But like Brandon Sanderson, uh, I read the first three books of his Stormlight ar archives uh, in in word form. And great. I had I had voices in my head. And then I just couldn't get around to finishing to re reading number four. And I finally got on the library list. So I listened to the fourth one. I was not a fan of the readers, uh, especially a couple of the characters they did was just so off the wall. It was like, oh, man, if this was my first time listening to this, it would have just ruined the book for me. But I had already read three books and I was established and I know that, nope, when five comes out, I'm going to read that one. I'm not listening to this one because I don't need it. I want to enjoy number five now. But I did it and I can say I've now read number four. Um, but 
I can only do that because I've listened to enough audiobooks now. And in generally, yeah, if it's a bad reader, I'm not going to listen to it. Um, but PG Woodhouse is a great example. I have certain readers I will 100% always listen to. Uh, Jonathan Cecil is is fantastic. Oh, I can't remember the other guy he is, but there's another one who reads it really, really dry. And I listen to the same story again under him, and it gives you a totally different laugh uh, for, for what you're reading it because he takes himself in. Uh, you're reading it uh, from uh, Wooster's point of view. And he's, 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 cause he's biographing, he's, he's writing it and he is taking himself so seriously that, it, and, and he's so just flippant as opposed to in Jonathan Cecil, it's all just laugh. You're just laughing at everybody because all the voices are there. Well, John, the other reader, he's just, he's so flippant and, and just arrogant. And so it's a totally different laugh because he's taking all of the, what the ant says way too seriously. And you're like, boy, I feel for you, man, but you're stupid. <laughs> and it just comes across so well because he's just so upper crust. Yeah. So the, the reader reader can make a break or book. I just think of the dry British humor as you're describing that yes. <laughs> and just the very yes. deadpan. Um, and I'm even I'm right now on Netflix. I'm watching um, Servant of the People, which is actually the Ukrainian yeah. comedy that President Zelensky started oh, yeah, as yeah, yeah. the president yeah. of yeah. Ukraine. And one of the characters yeah. is the president's secretary. And clearly a Slavic dry pan is a little different from a British dry sure, pan. Yeah. But at the same time, those characters, that attitude can bring so much depth to a story. And you would figure it would be flat, but it's anything but. I think it almost yeah. gives every other experience and every other character like something to bounce off of. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, it's like when you're watching old Monty Python, there's a John Cleese character is very different from a character played by Terry. Mm -hmm. You know, Terry, you know, it's absurd. And John Cleese takes himself so seriously <laughs> that when he's doing something too absurd, it's even funnier because he's so serious about this, that you know, he believes it. Whereas you can never believe anything Terry says. And Michael Palin is, you know, just going to be a deer in the headlights every single scene. And it's funny because you know, he knows what he's saying. And you know, d different different artists have different different brushstrokes. Oh, most definitely. And, and and that's the thing is we need this broad variety because every single yeah. one is going to pull on a different heartstring, is going to bring different humor, mm -hmm. is is going to mm -hmm. bring out even different intellectual parts, even in humor, mm -hmm. even in absurd humor. That it's still it, yeah. it's engaging that intellect. What impact are you looking for for your readers with your work that you're that you're putting out right now? I was thinking about that earlier today. I want to write fantasy that any age can read above a certain age. Um, that isn't YA, nor is it so adult that a little that I can't hand it to a 12 year old and say, oh, you can read my book. Totally. Um, I think it's what's missing from the 80s, which even going back and reading some of the stuff I read when I was a kid is like, oh, this this didn't this didn't. Uh, this is okay. <laughs> it wasn't as good as I thought it was back then. Um, but there was no YA back then. I know, I know they say that, you know, Harry Potter started YA. There was YA, there was middle readers before then, but there wasn't a YA section. And that one so panders to that age that it's not, I mean, is it really even fun for an adult to read? Well, if you grew up reading it, sure, then it's your thing and you can do that. But I don't want to read YA, but I also want, don't want an explicit content in my books. Mm. You know, so that's been my goal is to write something that I'm going to say, no, this is adult fantasy. And they're like, yeah, but where's the sex? It's like, well, there is none. 
I don't need that. I can get a, I can get away with it just fine. And, and I want to be able to hand this to my kids when they turn just old enough to read it. I'll say, here you go. Don't tell me if you didn't like it. <laughs> so. Well, and I think that, that there is absolutely a call for adult fiction that doesn't have explicit content. And that's actually mm-hmm. one of the reasons I started this show is I was having a hard time finding good fiction by living authors. Mm-hmm. And um, I've actually encountered people that have ceased to read fiction because the search for something that was not morally reprehensible mm-hmm. was exhausting. And the thing mm-hmm. is, is it's not, and the things that are put out right now, it's not even that they have sexual content per se. It's also mm-hmm. the nature of the sexual content mm-hmm. is incredibly exactly. degrading to the human person. Yeah. Yep. And I'm not saying, oh, everyone should throw it in so long as it isn't super gross. No, that's not what I'm saying. Sure, sure, sure. No, I know what you're saying. But yeah. that we don't need to assault the imagination mm-hmm. and the moral character of our society. Or throw it in just to get points. Well, this is PG-13, but we wish it was R, so let's throw in a scene and just push it into the R R level so we can make sure it's the right level. Or this is really a PG story, but if we throw in one thing and make it PG-13, okay, well, let's do that just to get, just get our points because that's who we want to have go to our show or read our book or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, the, the, the reader picked up the book and was enjoying the book. And mm-hmm. if they're reading regular genre fiction, they're probably not actually seeking titillation. So why are we mm-hmm. putting it in there? You know, mm-hmm. like I have yet to meet someone who said, well, I really enjoyed Lord of the Rings, but what it needed was some sex scenes. I said yeah. no one ever. Yeah. Yeah. So why is this the yeah. the modus operandi that the typical publisher is working with right now? I don't know. That's why I went indie instead of trad pub was part of it is I needed to be able to write what I wanted to write and not have somebody tell me what I had to put in for content. Um, that doesn't mean there's not corners that I have to make sure I'm not cutting uh, with editing or I certainly could have had somebody else do my audiobook. Uh, but most audiobooks don't come out for six months after a book, after which there's now an issue with um, China will take the transcript from the ebook and put it through a voice to text or text to voice and then put the text to voice up as an audiobook, and now Amazon won't take your audiobook because you're pirating your own stuff. Oh my. And so I, me and Trisha both decided that we were gonna be releasing our audiobooks day one, same day, so that it would be out. I've done enough stage performance. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try to record. And I knew the worst that was gonna happen, I was gonna lose 250 bucks on a mic and a month of my life because I would record it, find out it was garbage, and say, I have a nice mic now. So that's that. And after a month, I said, well, I lost a month of my life. I need to re-record this, but it's not half bad. Let's try it again. And every every book I record is going to be better than that. That saved me a lot of money. Not everybody should be reading their own books. <laughs> well, and I know that there are some books where I think I could read well, but my own book mm-hmm. taking pa- place in Northern Ireland and Australia and mm-hmm. having distinct English language accents that mm-hmm. I have never been immersed in, um, mm-hmm. that that would be asking for my book to be butchered <laughs> if I were to do yeah. that for my own book. And you, you bet you can find a good Irish reader who, who will gladly record it. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Are we almost saying that like 
art matters and quality matters. That's crazy. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes we do have to step outside ourselves to make it happen too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pride is a hard thing to swallow. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm very good at it. I'm I'm one of the most humble people I know. Absolutely. And 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 me too. As long as I drink that hum- humility with like a whole pint of coffee, I can get it down. Well, there you go. Just a pint, not a pot. Yeah. I need Just a pot. A pint. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's three pills. <laughs> oh. You know, we've talked about reading your audiobooks and writing and mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that. What if these things brought to your life outside? What has your creative process done to change and form your everyday life? It it gets my day going. Absolutely. I am more fulfilled when I have written in the morning than I am by the time I'm drained at the end of the day because I have no brain space at the end of the day to do something. So if I can get up and write for two hours, get up, do some prayer, read a Bible, write for two hours, have a thousand words, maybe 2000. If I'm really lucky, a 3000 word morning, then I go to work. It doesn't matter what happens at work. Nothing phases me. You can't offend me. You can't make me upset that something's going wrong because I did my thing. I'm great now. Whereas if I wake up too late, if I wake up late and I just go into work, it's just work for eight hours. And afterwards, I don't want to do anything and I've not done anything. I'm not accomplished. So there's a huge sense of accomplishment if by, by me writing in the morning because I haven't been a night owl for 15 years. But if you're a night owl, being able to go to bed with a mind clear, having written before you go to bed is, is just as important because it gets it out of your head and you're going to have a better night's sleep. Because it's not hanging over your head. Well, it still will hang over your head. That's that's being a writer. But you aren't completely, you aren't being forced to wake up at 2 a.m. and write down a note if you have the habit of two hours of writing at night or a thousand words in an hour. Whatever it is you've set your reachable goal to be is going to clear out your head and and take makes it much easier to sleep then too. <laughs> Oh, you're giving me motivation. But reachable goals are so important. You're giving me motivation to get on it and make another revision of my book. Groan. It's work. Set yourself a realistic expectation. Goals are not meant to be met. Goals are built to be broken. So people, I I have people I've like, how can I, how can you write so much? It's like, because I only set myself a 500 word goal. Mm. If it takes me three hours to get to 500 words, it was a struggle, but that means that it was 500 words. I no longer have to write. Those were the be- those were the hard ones. That was the hard page to write. I'm done. It's past it. Other days when I say I'm going to write 500 words and I write 3,000 words, man, what a great goal to look back and go, yep, I got this. And may- maybe I'll go back and look at it and find out it wasn't any good, but I wrote 3,000 words. That's, that's more than most people are going to say are written in a day. And... So you, you got to set yourself a goal and then stick with it. I mean, I built this habit of 5 a.m. since really only since this last I've been doing 5 a.m. for for two years now, but I've been writing very consistently since November. And it actually kept seasonal depression from ever hitting me this year. Oh, um, I wrote thinking I was going to just do audiobook stuff once. January came and I just wasn't feeling like writing. But because from NaNoWriMo on, I was writing a thousand words a day, nonstop. It, um, it never stopped. I, I, I was surprised myself, um, that, that I kept writing. I, I couldn't believe it that I got to February and I still had a, basically hadn't had a day I had missed. And then when we went on a writing, Trisha and I will go on a writing retreat, um, every six months or so, months or so. And usually at those I'll write 20,000 words in a weekend. And then I don't write for two weeks cause I'm just burnt out. Cause I ran a marathon without any mm. training 
Well, because I have been writing since November, I hit the marathon. And after 20,000 words on, on, on writing weekend, I came back and I kept writing. I didn't stop. I was like, because I had to have it built and I, I hate working out, but writing is a workout. And if you can get to the point past where you're no longer burning your muscles, your mental muscle muscles, because you're doing it every day, it's so much easier to just keep going. That is a lot of inspiration. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. (laughs) And it can apply to any goal. It could be a creative goal, but I I think that's the thing is is we, we really struggle to get momentum and there are Mm -hmm. infinite things that will distract us from what our true goals Mm -hmm. are out in the world right there. And and I can also speak to when I did NaNoWriMo, because I wrote my novel, Sewing Hope, in NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month 2019. Okay. And I can tell you that my mood, my mental health was in an incredible place mm-hmm. while I was writing that much. That that expression, and like you said, just that practice really does change things. You, you, you and my wife can speak to this much better than I can, but, but it is effectively birthing. I didn't realize my story that I started back in 2017, the collation cycle was as underdeveloped as I thought it was because it was in my head. Effectively, I was pregnant with it. And all it was, was a baby that hadn't been born yet. It's just sitting there. It's doing nothing. And it turns out, I didn't even know until until you give birth to it, that you realize that, oh, this baby now has an opportunity to grow into a child, to grow into a personality and not just feed me, bundle me, you know, that that's all it is at that point. And because I wasn't writing my own notes down and well, I, 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 well, did you write that down? No, no, I got it all up here. I'm good. I I know Mm. what I'm writing. It's all good. So yeah, no. And so getting the act of writing down your notes, you're, you're never going to be ready. You're never going to be ready once you finish the first draft to edit it. And now it's a toddler and you need to actually turn it into something that isn't just, you know, ugly little alien thing. Now it needs to be a child. Now it needs to be, a, <laughs> needs to grow up and it can't grow up until it's been born. And it can't be born until you've written it down and allowed it to start to take on a life of its own before you've even written the first words. So take notes and write consistently. <laughs> I, I have to have a little disagreement with your picture in your Go mind, ahead. though, of the yep. pregnancy thing, because I can tell yep. you, I can tell you that those kids do have a personality they even do. in the womb. But maybe that's the point, is that you as the writer or you as the mother, mm-hmm. that you experience that personality, but no one else can see it. Mm-hmm. That it's yeah. not that you it is You know what the genre present. is, but you don't know what story is going to be told yet. Mm-hmm. And you need to, and you need that story to be able to be exposed to the world. Mm-hmm. That Absolutely. part I agree and with. And to you Absolutely. too, because you have so much to discover about your own child when you're, when you're raising them and holding them and realizing, oh, wow, you're a lot funnier than I thought you were going to be. Or <laughs> oh, boy, you're serious. We got to work on that. <laughs> oh, our kids <laughs> fascinate us every day. They yeah. are, they are really yeah. neat people. And my, my husband was surprised because when our kids were born, we realize that they absolutely do have their own personalities. Like my, mm-hmm. my husband said, um, I imagined that they'd be a lump until they were about two. Mm-hmm. And he said, that has not been the case. No. That they have this full personality. And yes, that's still developing, but yeah. they are their own unique person. Yeah. And your story is your own unique story. It is. Yeah. My, my daughter came out smiling. She I went over there and and she grabbed my finger and smiled at me and it wasn't gas. Mm-hmm. And she'd been smiling ever since. And it was like, okay, this sets this precedence. I know who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
even to bring it around to to Leaf as only if I've had a few people who are like, well, how can a four year old? So in Thrice, the little boy named Leaf is only four and he's very prolific in what he says. And he's only four. Four year olds don't talk like that. It's like, well, you never had an intelligent four year old. <laughs> I have an intelligent. I had two intelligent four year olds and they say things that shouldn't come out of a child's mouth. Mm-hmm. That it's way too smart. And I was like, nope. I'm I was I wrote Leaf the way I wrote him because I was tired of having four year olds written as a kid who says goo goo gaga. And like it's a four year old. That is a huge jump. Four and five are are massive because they start getting really philosophical on you. They do. And, they do. And you don't expect it. And like and if they're not, then you then you're not asking the right questions for the child because they are they are ready to ask the big questions at four. I can tell. That's scary. Yeah. When when my eldest was four, she asked me the question, mommy, are soldiers bad guys? Yeah. That is a deep question. And I'm Mm -hmm. a fourth generation Mm -hmm. veteran and have been Mm -hmm. deployed. And so this was a very deeply profound question to me. And we had a conversation about it that was open and honest, appropriate to her age and her development. Mm -hmm. But- Mm -hmm. They're thinking. They've got a lot going on in those little heads. They do. Yeah. And then they move on. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mom, can I have ice cream yeah. now? Um, yeah. <laughs> but now we want to find out what's going on in your head in the rando round. How does that sound, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's roll those dice. All right. So do you want pink mermaid sparkles or tie-dye? Tie-dye, please. Tie-dye. All right. Or one of each. Let's do one of each, actually. Oh, my. That's the first request I've had for that. So l- let's do the tie-dye as the D10 and the uh, the pink as the D- as the uh, ones column. The pink is the ones, and then the tie-dye is the tens. The tie-dye is the tens. Okay. Yep. See, yep. just so the audience understands, this, this is a man who knows his dice, who knows gaming, yeah. who's worked for a gaming company. He knows cons, nerd yep. culture. The force is strong with this one. So let's see yes, what this we is the way. <laughs> let's see what we end up with. We've got 96. On a scale of one to ten, where would you fall on a weird scale? Uh, we're gonna go with eight. I've got Gonzo sitting right here next to me. He's been my hero since I was a little kid. So weird weirdos unite. Gonzo is absolutely a weirdo. It's true. It's yes. true. And I loved the Muppets yeah. when I was a kid. Me too. My favorite animal. I can't yeah. help it. Muppets were the only thing that would shut me up as a kid. So, <laughs> oh, I also loved Scooby Doo. So, yeah, Scooby Doo and the Muppets were where it's at. Yeah. Let's see what else we get here. Eighty six. Oh, am I fired? No. Okay. What What do you wish people understood about writing? Uh, some people would say a di- that ideas are a dime a dozen. And while that's true, I still disagree with that statement because if you don't have lots of good ideas, then you're not going to find the really good ones or be able to compile them into new ones. And some people have more good ideas than others and some people don't. No, that doesn't answer the question at all. <laughs> uh, writing is writing is a very, writing is a very, here you go. Writing is a very lonely profession and great for introverts, but extroverts such as myself love to talk about our books. So please talk to us about our books. Mm, Fair enough. 
don't know if that answers it, but <laughs> it does. It does. I think that's an important thing that that recognition, not re- not even just recognition, mm-hmm. being seen. Mm-hmm. That being seen well, you know, matters, especially for indie writers too. But I would say the same for traditional publishers too. Writers too is reviews are more important than than people realize. It's so easier for us to go, oh, it has five thousand reviews. I'll read it. I'm good. But you got to leave a review. Same with a podcast. If there's no reviews, it doesn't go up in rank. It cannot be seen. Traditional publishers are happy to take the sales and say, oh, they sold a lot. Let's just make more. Well, what if it was not any good? Well, it sold. So let's make more. It's like, yeah, great. For indie, you got to leave a review. On podcast, you got to leave a review. It cannot hurt you to even just start and walk away. And it, because, because it's a reflection of how many people actually are reading it, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like they used to say like radio used to be if we got 100 people who called in, it means there's 10,000 people calling or listening or something like that. And they could use that as a as a, a gauge short form. Yeah, it's a great it's a great gauge is leave reviews for, for writers and the traditional writers leave it for them, too. They, they want to hear they want to hear how you did and whether they actually are willing to go in and risk looking at the reviews or not. That's that's on them. I think that that's great advice because I I don't think that most consumers of creative arts recognize how hard it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. We've got 43. Did you think you would be an author when you were a child? Yes. Yes. I started writing when I was 13. I think it was 14 when I wrote one chapter and sent it to Tor and hoped that they thought that was good enough that they were just going to go ahead and just sign me up for it. They would not respond and I don't blame them because it was, it was not good. Um, but that was the, uh, that was the plan. And then I went on and did other things for a while and then always kind of came back to this. And now I'm, now I'm doing it. I love the image that the confidence of this teenage yes. kid sending a sample chapter into tour. That is awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, he, 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 was, he was a bit of a dummy. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. All right, 71. What are three books that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson will get you fastest into his shared universe fantasy series. Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco which is uh, a barely veiled Sherlock set in a monastery in middle of Europe, uh, murder investigation story. Mm. Barely veiled, meaning the main character's name is Baskerville. And, uh, <laughs> there's also the movie with Sean Connery, which was like the next year they made that, but it's a great book. And, and he's a, he's a great writer, an Italian author. And I think he, tra- he may have translated his own book for himself, but it's really good. So that's name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. And leave it to P. Smith by P.G. Woodhouse to bring us around. Nice. Nice. And I say P. Smith because uh, if you aren't reading it, it is P-S-M-I-T-H. But the P is silent. Very fine. Just like in shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question I ask all of my guests is what brings you hope right now? Oh, what brings me hope to see those Christians that have continued on in the faith, despite these last two years that they have refined and they've refined in a fire in this crucible of, which has been a very cold crucible to say the least, but uh, a crucible nonetheless, that, that they have uh, stood up and continued to 
to to stay the fight and run the race. And indeed to win an imperishable crown. That's right. And then cast it down at the feet of him and not keep it. Amen. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been such a pleasure. And I feel like my uh, to-be-read pile just grew quite a lot. And I thank (laughs) you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.